welcome to the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. This podcast is devoted to helping increase your daily exposure to God's Word with a short scripture reading and brief commentary on key ideas, themes, and theology in each chapter. Now please join your host, Dave Jenkins, for today's episode. Well, welcome back to the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And today we're going to look at Exodus chapter 7. Just as a reminder, every day I read from one chapter of God's Word. So today we're going to read from Exodus chapter 7, and then I offer a brief explanation of key ideas, themes, and theology very briefly. My goal is to get you into God's Word for about 5 to 20 minutes every day, and sometimes we do go 30 minutes. So let's get into our reading today from Exodus chapter 7. So let's get into our reading today from Exodus chapter 7. Exodus 7 says this, And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I commanded you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They they did just as the Lord commanded them. And now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. And then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourself by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. And so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. And then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, like the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs, and still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. And then the Lord said to him, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take in your hand the staff that they turned into a serpent. And ye shall say to them, Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. And thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will go weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all the pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up their staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. 
There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. And so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Well, this is the reading from God's word from Exodus chapter 7. You know, the tension here in this Exodus story has built to a crescendo. Moses and Aaron still stinging from Pharaoh's cavalier dismissal of their efforts to call for Israel's release, as well as from Israel's fury at the increased misery of their situation after that first effort, dare to believe again that God will indeed do as God promised he would. And even though they will have have to walk a painful path and even though obedience was not the nice the clean the simple cause and effect relationship that they assumed it might be they dare believe and will come to see that god is faithful even when obedience isn't easy their belief and even willingness to try again is predicated on a renewed divine expression of the sovereign plan of god and the authority of god in this difficult situation now, the Lord begins this assertion of his saving plan by saying something very interesting to, to Moses. And he says it here in the first two verses. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. What does this mean that Moses will be like God to Pharaoh? Well, it, it certainly does not mean that the Lord has somehow deified Moses. Now, Moses is not God, and, and that is not the intent of the saying. What it means is that Moses will be God's representative before Pharaoh. But it means even more than this. It means as God's representative and as Moses speaks the word of God, Moses will indeed speak with the authority of God himself. This is why we see the link between I have made you like God to Pharaoh in verse 1 and you shall speak all that I commanded you in verse 2. That's a vital connection. Moses will be like God only in so far as he speaks the word of God. That is why we need to be faithful to the word of God. We need to be faithful to handle the word of God as 2 Timothy 2.15 commands us to do. Now, this was an amazing and even a humbling thought. No doubt, it was humbling to Moses and even to Aaron. It's amazing to hear the sovereign certainty of the Lord's revelation concerning what is about to happen. Now, let's look at, at verses 3 through 5. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Now, Exodus, the book of Exodus, it speaks of two realities, Pharaoh's hardening of his own heart and God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart some have even suggested that the latter is simply a euphemism for the former but it but it seems that more is happening here than just that 
The Lord indeed hardens Pharaoh's heart. God is sovereign. He can do as he intends uh, for the furtherance of his own glory. And yet even so, it cannot be denied that this divine hardening is somehow connected to Pharaoh's own sin and Pharaoh's hardening of his own heart. Well, regardless of how it's understood, the justice and even the goodness of God cannot be impugned. God is just in all that he does. And the sinfulness of Pharaoh, like our own sinfulness, it deserves divine justice. It is this fact that makes the grace we receive because of the finished and sufficient work of Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection. So amazing indeed. That's why we sing that famous hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, right? By John Newton. Now, God's grace must also call us to act. Sooner or later, it must be embraced or even rejected. And and we see this subtle but powerful statement beginning at verse 6 of this chapter, which says, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses and Aaron did so. Now, despite all of Moses' protests, despite all of Moses' fears, despite Moses' debilitating lack of confidence, he did so. He did what God called him to do. Friends, God's call to act must sooner or later be embraced or even rejected. You you cannot forever argue with the Lord. You must either walk in his will as revealed in the word of God or walk away in defiance and in rebellion against his word. And as his children, the choice must be that we walk in his will as revealed in the word. Now, Moses was 80 years old and Aaron, 83 years old, when they spoke to Pharaoh, verse 7 says, and in stating their ages, it's quite intentional. The significance of having an 80 and an 83 year old undertake this arduous task cannot be lessened or diluted with some appeal to the old ages to which many ancient people lived. For for Moses only lived to be 120. 20 years. This means that while 80 at the time admittedly did, did not directly parallel our 80, it was still a significantly advanced age that is worth noting. A.W. Pink observes that this reference to the ages of Moses and Aaron brought in here in order to magnify the power and the grace of Jehovah. He was pleased to employ two aged men as his instruments. And one of the great tragedies of modern American society is the subtle and not so subtle ways that our culture even communicates an almost expected insignificance for the elderly. Even the retired culture contains a debilitating idea that the retired should content themselves with games and diversions and television, that the crux of their great contribution to society is finished. Well, that's a false notion, and that false notion is also sometimes communicated in our churches, though nothing can be furthered from the truth. In fact, that's why Titus 2 says that older men are to come alongside and walk with uh, younger men. And that's why it also says in Titus 2 that older women are to come alongside younger women. It's important that we think biblically about aging and about the contours of life as a whole. An anonymous person has penned the following charming little tale about the length of man's days when they said, God created the mule and told them, you'll be a mule working constantly from dusk to dawn, carrying heavy loads on your back. You will eat grass and you will lack intelligence. You will live for 50 years. The mule answered to live like this for 50 years is too much. Please give me no more than 30. And it was so. Then God created the dog and said, you will hold vigilance over the dwellings of man to whom you'll be his greatest companion. You will eat his table scraps and lived for 25 years. And the dog said, Lord, to live 25 years as a dog is too much. Please no more than 10 years. And it was so. 
God then created the monkey and told him, you are a monkey. You will swing from the tree to tree, acting like idiots. You will be funny, and you will live for 20 years. And the monkey responded, Lord, to live 20 years as a clown of the world is too much. Please, Lord, give me no more than 10 years. And it was so. And finally, God created man and told him, you are man, the only rational being that walks the earth. You will use your intelligence to have mastery over the creatures of the world. You will dominate the earth and live for 20 years. And the man responded, Lord, to be man for only 20 years is too little. Please, Lord, give me the 20 years the mule refused, the 15 years the dog refused, and the 10 years the monkey rejected. And it was so. And so God made man to live 20 years as a man, then marry and live 20 years like a mule, working and carrying heavy loads on his back. And then he is to have children and live 15 years as a dog, guarding his house and eating the leftovers after they empty the pantry. Then in his old age to live 10 years as a monkey, acting like a fuel to amuse his grandchildren. And it was so. Well, that's humorous in a way, and it causes us to chuckle. It should, but it should also cause us to shudder. Surely the Lord God did not intend for us to end our days as a monkey, amusing and even acting clownish before our grandchildren. But our culture almost expects such nonsense. Neither are you a mule or a dog or a monkey. You are a child of the living God, and you have work to do for the kingdom of God if you are in Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it is never too late to be of service to your king. It is never too late to try to accomplish great things for the Lord. You see, we should die in the midst of attempting great things for God. Moses was 80. Aaron was 83. What are you attempting for the king of kings and the Lord of lords? Have you embraced a mission that will transcend your earthly years? We must or we are not attempting enough for the honor and glory of our great king. Now in verses 8 through 13, we're going to see the path of obedience is surrounded by opposing powers, but none as strong as the power of God. And so Moses and Aaron act, and in doing so, they face great opposition. Let's read verses 8 through 13 again. And then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourself by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. And so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. And then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and they the magicians of the Egypt also did the same by their secret arts for each man cast down his staff and they became serpents but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs and still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said this episode has led to no small degree of comment. The miraculous transformation of Aaron's staff into a snake is less difficult than the magical transformation of the Egyptian magical staffs. Some even try to explain their magical way on rationalistic grounds, suggesting that this was a mere parlor trick or an illusion. I read a fascinating theory that there is a way to paralyze a cobra, making it go rigid like a staff, and then to revive it again. Apparently, you can see this trick performed in Egypt to this very day. It has even been suggested that this is what is happening here, and there's no real power being demonstrated. Well, for one thing, there's nothing in the way this is written to suggest that the magicians of Egypt are practicing some mere sleight of hand. On the contrary, it sounds as if that actual power is being demonstrated here. But how can this be? It, it can be because though limited and always exi existing only insofar as God allows it, the devil does indeed have power. This is why we are warned to avoid occultic praxis because they are really are diabolical powers that work in and through those occultic practices. 
And what we see in the conflict between Moses and Pharaoh is really a microcosm of the great conflict between the Lord God and between Satan himself. The magicians are reflecting the devil's power. But what is truly noteworthy is the fact that Moses and Aaron face these hostile powers. They are still, nonetheless, inferior powers that they face. The power of Satan is no match for the power of God, to be clear. And thus, the Lord's serpent eats the magician's serpents. The magicians, though, do have a kind of power. But it is a mimicking power, posturing to convince Moses and Aaron that they were indeed more powerful than they really were. Well, interestingly, Paul gives us the names of two magicians who oppose Moses and Aaron in 2 Timothy 3, and he he does so to make a particular point. Let's look at that text right now in 2 Timothy 3 in the first nine verses. We say, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. So these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the truth. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Now, Paul uses the example of the Egyptian magicians, Janus and Jambres, to speak of people who pose as authentic believers but are really not. These are people who will have a type of power, but not the genuine power of God. He is warning that people like this come into the church, they pretend like the magicians to be more than they are. In commenting on this passage, Charles Henry McIntosh made this observation. There is nothing which so tends to deaden the power of the truth as a fact that persons who are not under its influence at all do the same self-image things as those that they are. This is Satan's agency just now. He seeks to have all regarded as Christians. There have always been people like Janice and Jambres. They can impress with their tricks, convince the gullible that they have real power, but they are not of God. And even so, these magicians do have limited power, and though it fails to match the true power of God. But Aaron Stafford told swallow up their stuffs. This is a powerful moment, this devouring of Pharaoh's serpents. It's a statement of the superiority of God, the power of God, but probably in more ways than we realize. Philip Riken has offered some interesting insights into the Egyptians' fascination with snakes when he says this. The Egyptians were fascinated with snakes partly because they were so afraid of them. Many of them carried amulets to protect them from Apophysis, the serpent god who personified evil. Egyptian literature contains various spells and even incantations to afford protections from snake bite. It was this fear of snakes that led Pharaoh to use a serpent as a symbol of his royal authority. His ceremonial headdress, like the famous uh, death mask of Tukahamen, was crested with a fierce female cobra. 
The idea was that Pharaoh would terrorize his enemies the way a cobra strikes fear into a prey. This is how a relief at Karnak describes one of Shukinus' victories in battle. Thy war mace, it struck down thy foes. Thy serpent crest was mighty among them, Riken says. Despite their fears of snakes, the ancient Egyptians nevertheless were drawn to worship them. This is how Satan generally operates, using fear to gain power. Serpent worship was particularly strong in the Nile Delta where the Hebrews lived. There, there the Egyptians built a temple in the honor of the snake goddess Wajet, who was represented by the hieroglyphic sign of the cobra. Some of the pharaohs even believed that she had brought them to the throne and invested them with her divine powers. Others considered her to be their protector. Now, an inscription found at Tanis, Pharaoh Tahikra claimed, I had taken the diadems of Re and I had assumed the double serpent crest as a protection of my limbs. And according to another ancient text, his gods are over him. His arenous serpents are over his head. And after surveying this and other evidence, John Curry concludes, this serpent-crested diadem of Pharaoh symbolized all the power, all the sovereignty, and all the magic with which the gods endowed the king. By finding its security in the serpent king, Pharaoh was actually making an alliance with Satan. The ancient manuscripts are explicit in this. When Pharaoh first ascended the throne of Egypt, he would take the royal crown and say, O oh, great one, O oh, magician, O oh, fiery snake, let there be terror of me like the terror of thee. Let there be fear of me like the fear of thee. Let there be awe of me like awe of thee. Let me rule a leader of the living. Let me be powerful a leader of spirits. This helps us see exactly what the Lord is saying to Pharaoh as well as the fascinating way in which he chooses to say it. The Egyptians feared and even worshipped the serpent. It was the symbol of Pharaoh's power and his kingdom. And thus the transformation of the staff into a serpent and even more so the single serpent of God eating the serpents of Pharaoh was a provocative act filled with symbolic importance. It was a blatant statement to Pharaoh that the source of his strength and the source of his power, as, as he and even the Egyptians perceived it, was nothing to God. These serpents before whom Egypt trembled and worshipped were mere puppets in the hands of the one true God. What we see in all of this background and in God's dramatic statement to Pharaoh through the obedience of his servants Moses and Aaron is simply an Old Testament demonstration of the beautiful truth uh, communicated by John in 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Yes, obey the Lord in a fallen culture and you're going to face spiritual opposition of the devil, but be encouraged today. The power of darkness does not match the power of light. The power of the devil does not compare to the power of God. He is not an equal opposition. He is but a, a cre creation whose time draws near. He has the power to frustrate us, to be sure, but he cannot overcome the Lord Jesus to whom we have pledged allegiance and who dwells within us through the work of the Holy Spirit. Take courage. The staff of a living God is mightier than the staff of the devil. There is no comparison. We can thereby obey in the steady confidence that our God is indeed God. Our God reigns. He has never been defeated. He never will be. May we, like Moses and even Aaron, stand in the halls and the arenas of this fallen world order and announce the liberation we have through the person and work of Christ, knowing that in doing so, we speak the truth of God with God's blessing and with God's authority as revealed in the Word. See, the Lord is for us. Who can be against us, as Paul says in Romans 8? Prophet as a term and even as an office, it tends to be widely misunderstood today. Many people think of prophets as those who predict the far-off future, men and women who have supernatural insight into what will happen in centuries yet to come. 
Of course, many of the Old Testament prophets did have such a perception. We think of men such as Isaiah, who foresaw in detail the Messiah's atonement and resurrection more than 750 years before the events on Calvary in Isaiah 53. Consider also Daniel, who predicted the rise and the fall of Alexander the Great more than 200 years prior to Alexander's conquest in Daniel 11. And nevertheless, predicting the future was not the Old Testament prophet's major responsibility. Our English word prophet is usually a translation of the Hebrew term nabai, which means to call or to proclaim. Prophet also translates other Hebrew words that means servant of the Lord and watcher or seer. And from these terms, as well as the actual content of the prophetic books, we learn that those who were called to be prophets under the Old Covenant were appointed to bring the people of Israel special messages from God to watch over the Israelites to ensure that they kept the terms of their covenant with the Lord. Well, you see, the Old Testament prophets were spokesmen for God. In fact, Exodus 7, 1 through 7 reveals this task. God compares Moses, the model for all the Old Covenant prophets, in, according to Deuteronomy 34, 10, to himself, and even appoints Aaron to be Moses' prophets. Now, in receiving words from Moses, God, and speaking them to Pharaoh, Aaron, the prophet, was to call the king to repent, and even to recognize the one true Lord and king over all, and to free the Israelites from slavery in Exodus 7, 1 through 2. All the Old Testament prophets who followed would do the same, calling the covenant people to repent, to serve God, and obey his holy word. And, and because God has fully and finally revealed himself in his son in the word, we believe that the Lord does not call people to the office of prophet today, as Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 says. And yet that does not mean that there is no one to be God's spokesman today. Preachers who faithfully preach the whole counsel of God, as Paul charged the elders at Miletus, do speak for him in so far as their messages are faithful to what the word of God says. And when the preacher delivers a sermon that is faithful to scripture, we are bound to hear it, we are bound to obey it, and we are bound to be pointed to Christ from that text. And our response should be one of repentance and and faith and growth in the grace of God. Well, I want to thank you for listening or watching today's episode of Reading the Bible Daily with Dave. My name is Dave, and we've looked at Exodus 7. Until tomorrow, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to also like, subscribe, or follow Servants of Grace on Facebook, Instagram, X, or YouTube. We appreciate your support.